If you are joining us for the first time, over the last several weeks, we have been going through the book of Judges in a series entitled Broken People, Faithful God. Uh, It has been a wild ride as there is a lot that is way more than PG or even PG-13 in the book of Judges, and we'll continue to see some of those same issues, challenges, and themes. This morning, I'm going to invite you, if you have your Bible, to go to Judges chapter 4, And we're going to be covering the next storyline in the bigger picture of the book of Judges that covers most of Judges chapter 4 and uh, chapter 5. As we hit some of these bumps and bruises that are here in the book of Judges, I want to remind you that what we see clearly throughout the book are two really, really important realities or themes. The first is that we are broken, sinful people. Um, This scripture is going to open in just a second by saying the Israelites once again turn their back on God, turn their eyes away from the Lord. And there is a cycle that I've given you, kind of the four S's that take place really in every story within the book of Judges that begins with humanity's sin and then moves into them literally becoming slaves to that enemy of sin. And then supplication or or prayer, crying out to God and God sending a, a human savior or rescuer, that judge person. God is going to send a judge here once again to save them, but even the judge themselves, that human, we will see is ultimately broken and falls short of being able to save them in any sort of a permanent way. But behind that reality that in itself would be very hopeless is the promise of a faithful, eternal, grace-filled God. God sends that human judge or savior or rescuer, but he does more than that. You see throughout the story of Judges that His name is never mentioned, but someone is clearly missing. Someone is clearly anticipated through all of these Old Testament stories that the people of Israel are in need of a eternal savior, one who is both God and man. And so even though Jesus' name is never spoken in the text, everything about this scripture is pointing us, Old and New Testament, to our need for one single eternal savior. Now, in this story in Judges chapter 4, we're going to get three new characters, a judge named Deborah, a commander of the military named Barak, and then another woman who is really simply a housewife whose name is Jael, and we're going to see how God works in and through them. And even as I hear these two ladies and man's story, uh, it gives me a heart and a desire to see God work out his promises in my two daughters and my son in the same way that we see God work out his promises in these people who are broken themselves themselves, but desire to be faithful to their faithful God. Uh, We're going to see them called, using their gifts, being brave, obedient, and ultimately watching God win victory. So let's go now to the scriptures this morning. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read through 11, again of Judges chapter 4. The scripture says this, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harashath Hagayim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he, that is Sisera, the enemy, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. 
she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Separate thought, but important. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Let's take a moment and let's pray as we open God's word. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it is perfect. It is flawless. It gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we submit ourselves to you and your word this morning. God, would you encourage us, fill us with joy. Lord, draw us closer to your heart as we hear your promises and are reminded of not only our need for you, but the strength that you provide, Lord, that only comes from you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Four applications for us this morning from God's one, jumping right into number one. God calls us to use our spiritual gifts. God calls us to use our spiritual gifts. We get this in particular in verses four through nine, seeing the character of Deborah. Deborah is called to use her gifts, her spiritual gifts. She is, among other things, judging as God's appointed judge. And again, Throughout the book of Judges, judge is not necessarily the way we would think of an American judge, but it is a rescuer, in a sense, a savior that God has sent to help lead his people. She is also leading the nation of Israel. She is, we're told, setting some sort of civic disputes and bringing justice also in the sense that we might think of an American judge doing. She's also summoning the military commander on God's request to serve we're told that she is a prophetess, and so here she is in the Old Testament speaking the word of God to, in this case, the commander of the army, Barak. And the command that God gives through Deborah is this, take the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulon and go fight. So God has given him, given them this command, but it comes with a promise as it always does from God. And God's promise is this, I will draw out this enemy, Sisera, and I will give them into your hands. God always promises, God always delivers. And then we see though that immediately Barak is resistant to some degree to God's command. It says then that Deborah went with Barak when he refused to go without her and says that the glory will not be his, but will be, in fact, a woman's. And one of the things that we get from this story right off the bat is that women have access by God's gifting to every spiritual gift that men do. And in fact, all of God's believers have been given a spiritual gift or gifts that we are called to use and to employ in God's kingdom. 
In this particular story, some have said that the only reason that Deborah was a prophetess here was because there were no godly men around to lead, and that this demonstrates a major failure in manhood. Now, in Judges, we clearly have the theme throughout of broken people failing consistently. So it is clear here that the man here, Barak, does show weak faith and a lack of godly leadership, a lack of godly manhood. But there isn't at the same time anything explicit in this passage that tells us that the only reason that Deborah was leading was because Barak or any other man's sin. What we do see clearly in this passage is that the God of the Old and New Testament has clearly equipped and called all of his people, both men and women, to use their spiritual gifts to serve in God's kingdom. Uh, The Bible throughout Old and New shows us many women specifically, though, who are called, gifted, leading, and serving God, and whose lives we can all look to and emulate. Women like Miriam, Hannah, Abigail, uh, Naomi and Ruth, Esther, Queen Esther, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth, Mary and Martha, Eunice, the mother of Timothy, or grandmother of Timothy, Priscilla, and Phoebe are all women who are highlighted in the scripture as using their spiritual gifts to serve as part of the family of God. I married a woman who has a passion to love and to serve, to lead and to care for you. And I'm thankful for that. And I want to be used by God to encourage her in that role in any way that I can. And as a church, we want to equip all of our women and our men to live out their call to use their spiritual gifts to grow this church as a part of God's family and to reach the people in this city for Christ. The bigger picture, if you are in Christ, you have been given a gift and a call. Every believer, male, female, old, young, married, single, every tribe, tongue, and nation, in fact, has been given, Scripture tells us, at least one spiritual gift. We get not an exhaustive list, but a really powerful list in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 4 through 14, tells us there are many spiritual gifts, but the same God over all, that each believer has been given at least one gift, and that the body of Christ needs each of its parts equally. We need you, is the point. We need every single one of you being used by God, by his power, to grow his glory in his kingdom. Ephesians chapter 4 gives us a little bit more on this topic, though. Verses 11 through 13, I want to read to you. It says this, And he, the Lord, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what that is telling you, among many things, is that I, as your pastor, my call is to equip all of the saints so that you might do the ministry. It is a a false assumption to think, oh, well, the pastor does all the ministry, and we just come. We just show up. Not only that, though, All of us are called to be disciple makers, to lead other people in their relationship towards Christ, not only sharing the good news with them and seeing them come to Christ, but raising them up in the faith. And a part of that, one aspect of that discipleship is helping people 
identify what are their particular spiritual gifts and how might they employ them to the glory of God. There are no spectators is the idea that we're going to continue to see play out in this passage. Only servants. God has not called any of us to be on the back line, disengaged or uninvolved. I want to uh, close just thinking about this initial part by just giving you three applications that are particularly to our ladies, but really apply ultimately to all of us as believers. But just thinking about the women of our church, we need Deborah's in our church and in our ministry who will teach and serve with wisdom and humility and faith. Um, our church doesn't work right without every single woman who is here being used by God for his glory. Women who are leading in some of our groups, who are helping in worship, who are helping in prayer, who are teaching and shepherding our, our youth and our children, who are serving with our welcome team and our setup team and our prayer team, are in our outreach and evangelism being used by God. We need Deborah's in our church. Secondly, we need Deborah's in our homes who would encourage their husbands and help lead their children and families towards Christ. Uh, as the pastor of our church and as the leader of our home, I need Alana as my partner, as co-disciples under King Jesus, as co-disciplers of our children, trying to raise them up to teach them who Jesus is, to fear and love and serve him, and as co-partners as we serve you all and try and care for our church. Thirdly, we need Deborah's in our city. We need Deborah's from our church in our city who would lead and rule and teach and judge and share the gospel and bring the kingdom of God to bear in this city in every area, whether that be politics or business or education or wherever it is that God may have called you, be a Deborah in the roles that God has called you to. Amen. Number two, God calls us to be brave and faithful. And here we get a little bit of a focus on this man, Barak, and we see this in verses 6 through 16. God gives us a command, and the command is go and fight. This is a picture of the Christian life. It is in many ways a battle. But God gives the promise, I will give Sisera into your hands. And we'll see constantly that God's people will forget that promise and think, I've got to do this myself, and yet we'll continue to see people fail and God succeed and be faithful. But you see Barak's response to God's promise, I will go only if Deborah will go with me. His response is weak. His faith is weak. His action is weak. And this is a theme throughout Judges that God's people are weak in faith. Uh, Deborah says in the NIV, because of the way you are going about this, the glory will not be yours. The issue, the way, is his refusing to trust and obey God. God made his promise clear, and Barak hesitates. And we can understand, though, if, if we're Barak, understand the situation. He is facing a massive enemy. This is an enemy that is vastly superior to his own. It actually gives us the number of iron chariots that the enemy has, 900 chariots. The implication is Israel has none 
or has very few. And so the fear of his army literally being trampled underfoot by horses and chariots is a very real fear. So often when God calls us to something, he is calling us to something that on our own we cannot possibly do. And we look at it and we go, I can't handle this. I can't survive this. I can't do this. But God uses it to call us to a bigger faith where God's saying, in me, through me, by my power, you will see me work. But you see already that the enemy is going to go exactly where God said that they would go. The location is the Kishon River, or the, the riverbed of the Kishon River. Next, we see Deborah has to call Barak again a second time and say, let's go. Uh, look at Judges 4.14. Deborah said to Barak, up. We assume she said up because he was down. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. I want you to see here as well, God's faithfulness and God's sovereignty motivates our obedience. God's faithfulness and God's sovereignty motivates our repentance because what's going to begin to take place here is Barak's repentance. It says God is faithful. At Barak's advance, verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera. Who routed? The Lord routed Sisera. God here honors obedience, although it is certainly a weak obedience, and so we see God's grace that God is loving Barak even through his weak response. God's sovereignty and human responsibility, in this case, Barak's responsibility, are best friends. You don't have to choose one or the other, practically or theologically. God is clearly authoring every part of this story. And yet Barak is responding. He chooses ultimately to be brave, and he ultimately, after much struggle, chooses the way of faith to follow what God has commanded him and ultimately open the door for him to do. We see again God's glory on display in that he provides. The enemy is destroyed. It says not a man was left, except for one. Sisera, the commander of this enemy army, says that he abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. We also get that in verse 15. We're going to begin to see here our faith has got to be built on God's faithfulness. Uh, the scripture has a lot to say about faith, particularly in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says this, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. But it's interesting, Hebrews 11 actually comes back to this exact story. If we skip ahead to verses 32 through 34, the author of Hebrews says this, What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. Stop right there. What do we know about every single one of these guys? They're failures in so many ways. They're weak in faith, and yet God chooses to highlight them in what is referred to as the hall of faith. Verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. 
these incredibly flawed guys, God moved in them and incited within them a bravery and a faith. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. God is looking for those of us who would say, I am available. Not necessarily that you have ability, but that you have availability. And you may say, no, nah, not me, because I've made mistakes. I've blown it too many times. God is not interested in using me, but God's grace says otherwise. Would you just come to him in availability? One of the ladies of our church just last week was sharing with me in her prayer time that she has recently begun praying exactly that. Lord, I don't know what my ability might be, but I am making myself available to you. Man, that's awesome. That's exactly what God is calling us into, to follow him, to trust him. It's not about what we bring to the table. It's about what he brings to the table. This passage reminds us specifically, though, we need more brave faithful men. Look at chapter 5 of Judges, if you will. Verse 1 and verse 9 says this. This is Deborah sort of giving a praise report after everything has settled down. She says, when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Deborah here is rejoicing after battle that the men God called to lead finally have stepped up, have stepped forward, and have led. She commands the men who came, or she commends the men who came to fight. She lists a couple of tribes. She lists the tribe of Ephraim and commends them for coming up. She lists the tribe of Benjamin, of course Benjamin, always Benjamin, faithful Benjamin. She lists Issachar. She lists Zebulun and Naphtali and says, these men risked their lives and praises them for what they have done. But then she reminds us that Reuben, Gilead, Dan, and Asher remain home and refused to fight. It literally says, she describes it this way, they remained on the coast and stayed in the cove. Think about that. We've got a lot of men in our culture, inside and outside the church, that are hanging out on the coast. Hanging out on the coast when they ought to be in the fight, leading the fight. One of our temptations since Adam is to be men who will put our comfort ahead of our calling. I'm more interested in my comfort than what God has called me to do. You notice these are not terrible guys. They're not murdering and pillaging. But when God called, they didn't show up. The fear here is real. They're physically present, but they're spiritually absent. Whether that be in the church, in the home, or in the city, God is calling us as men to be spiritually present and not just around. Here, specifically, God curses spectators. If we go a little further, I'm going to read to you Judges 5 and verse 23. God says, curse Miraz. We don't know who he is. We just know that he didn't show up when he was supposed to. Curse Miraz, said the angel. Curse its people bitterly because they did not come to help the Lord. God is calling us to be men who would be brave, who would lead in our church, who would get in the battle, who would give of our time, our talent, our treasure, everything that we have. Take up our crosses and follow Jesus. She says, the princes lead, 
The princes lead because they are the ones who are called to lead. Single, married, young, old, you have a crucial role to play in leading your family, men. You have a crucial role to play in leading your church. You have a crucial role in being a part of growing the kingdom of God in our world. And men, you cannot be replaced. Your Focus on the Family did a study several years back. They looked at what is the nature of the role of men spiritually within their household. And this is one of the things they came up with. They say, if a child is the first to become a believer in Jesus in that family, there's a 3.5% chance that the rest of the family will become Christians. If the mother in that family becomes a Christian, there is a 17% chance, says this study, that that entire family will come to Christ. But if the father is the first to come to Christ, there is a 93% chance that the rest of the family will themselves give their lives to King Jesus. God calls all of us to follow, to serve, to be brave, and to be faithful. But we see through Barak's mistake the invitation of God to be men of God, all of us to be faithful, to be brave. Number three, we get our third character, JL. God calls us through JL. Number three, God calls us to simple obedience, simple obedience. We get her story in chapter four, verses 17 through 22. It begins, though, a little bit earlier when we read the initial scripture passage, we get this what seems like a very random, odd comment at the end there in verse 11. It's telling us, hey, 10,000 Israelites are headed off to war against Sisera's 900 chariots plus whatever else makes up his army. But the Bible kind of takes a time out and wants to tell us about this guy named Heber. Love the name Heber. Uh, we've got two ladies who are having sons in the next couple weeks. I think you should reconsider whatever name you've chosen. Heber, the Kenite, could be an awesome name. Go with Heber. Probably not, but Heber the Kenite. And it tells us in this fantastic maneuver, Heber the Kenite has moved to the big tree near Kadesh. You're going, what? Sometimes the scripture will give us what feels like a very throwaway commentary on things like I, Heber the tree, lots of words I can't pronounce, okay. But we're going to see here, if we read every detail, that God is up to something. God is sovereign. God is leading. God is doing what only he can do. And he is leading them to the exact place. He's leading Heber and his wife, Jael, to the exact place where Sisera, running away, is going to find himself very soon. You know, I find this a, a, a tremendous encouragement because I think all of us, if we're honest, we very quickly reach this point of questioning God. When things don't make sense or when things don't line up, when we hit crises or situations, we go, God, what are you doing? I don't understand what you're doing. I don't even like what you're doing. And it's an understandable res a response, but God calls us even in this to faith. Um, you may be like me. You may be a planned individual. You may have Excel sheets that tell you what you're going to do and when and how and how much you're going to spend and where it's going to go. We might even have an engineer or two in, in our church family here, right? We're a planned bunch. We think through. There's exactness and specificity, and yet God says, I've got a different way. I've got a better way. You may have a plan, but I have power. Listen to what the scripture says in Isaiah 55. 
such an awesome promise that we can take it as a threat or we can take it as a, as a promise. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The scripture says that Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. She meets Sisera, welcomes him, gives him a warm blankie and a glass of milk, and he goes to sleep. Gotta love Judges 4.21. Look at Judges 4.21 with me. But Jael, the wife of Heber. You read this story before? If you haven't, welcome to this story. Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness and in the most unnecessary clause in all of Scripture. So he died. Check. Got it. I'm with you. Um, when we were picking, uh, Lola's our second child, when we were picking out Lola's names, like all of us, and you kind of have the initial round of ideas, and JL was actually one of our ideas, and we ultimately went with Lola. But I remember thinking at the time, well, I think now, of my three kids, if there was a child who was going to grab a tent peg and drive it through a dude's head, it would totally be Lola, because she takes after my wife. So just so you know a little bit about my family. Um, Here's what's interesting, though. Tent setup and tent teardown in that culture and in that time was very much women's work. The wife of the family was in charge of doing the tent. So if you follow the stereotype, this is the equivalent of this lady killing this dude with a frying pan. That is what is taking place here. So Barak, the commander of Israel's army who has finally summoned faith, you can imagine Barak shows up out of breath, bloodied from battle, sword in hand, don't worry, little lady, I've got this one, and then opens the tent flap and finds that the housewife has already driven a railroad spike through the dude's head. So what is happening here with JL? Faithful obedience, simple obedience. She was willing to simply do what God led her to do. Judges 5.24 confirms this because Judges 5.24 calls her most blessed of women, for taking out this guy, Sisera. Uh, this is the same phrase that is used to describe Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the New Testament. I'm not aware of any other time in the Bible that this level of praise is given. She's simply obeying, simply having faith in God. And this woman, Jael, reminds us that simple obedience for us is not putting tent spikes through people's heads, but ruthlessly attacking sin, Satan and death in our lives, in our families, and in our world. She is passionately sold out to her mission, and God calls us equally to be passionately sold out to the mission of following Christ and putting to death sin in our lives and in whatever we, we can to lead others, to disciple others, to do the same, knowing that Christ is far better than any sin or any idol that we could possibly chase. And that promise in these three characters lead us to our most important character. Number four, God. God calls us to trust him for victory, even when defeat seems sure. This is so important. God calls us to trust him for victory, even when defeat 
seems sure. God wins. God always wins. And God gets all the glory. You remember earlier, Deborah said to Barak, the honor will not be yours. The Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And she was right in what she said. But it's interesting here, it wasn't even Deborah. Deborah does not get the glory. Barak does not get the glory. The woman is Jael. And God uses all three of them. But through that whole process, we see behind all of it, in all of it, God gets all the glory. Don't underestimate simple obedience in each of these characters. You know, what JL does, we think, man, it's crazy. But it was a simple thing, wild thing, but a simple thing. And God works through our simple obedience as well. Trust God to win the victory, even when defeat seems sure. Listen to Judges 5. This is verses 19 through 21. This is, again, part of the praise that Deborah is offering after the completion of the battle. She says, kings came, they fought. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder of silver. So she is, in a sense, mocking the enemy and describing the fact that they were a failure. They came, they thought they were going to conquer us, but they took no plunder. Verse 20, from the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon, march on my soul, be strong. The enemy and his 900 chariots are defeated, but we still don't really know until this point, how were they defeated? Judges 5.4, a little earlier, tells us that God caused the clouds to rain down water start to get a picture of what's happening. It's important to know it's the dry season in Israel when this story is taking place. Sisera would never have gone into a river valley, the Kishon River Valley, if it was rainy season, but it's dry season. And so he plans on taking his 900 chariots down a dry path in a riverbed. But God shows up. God shows up in a miraculous way. This would be like snow in Palm Bay in July. This is not what is supposed to be happening. How do you stop 900 chariots? Well, Deborah can't do that. Barak and his men can't do that. Jael cannot stop 900 chariots, but God can. And in chapter 5, the praise report, we learn from Deborah that God sent a flood and it made all of those chariots useless because the dry riverbed turned to mud and every single chariot got stuck. This is the reason that it says Sisera ran away on foot because his own chariot too was stuck in God's sovereignty. He makes them stop. He sends the water. Sisera runs away and we know how God takes care of him as well, which is a terrifying reminder. God will destroy all those who oppose him. You may read this story and you may have a real distaste for God's justice for Sisera at the hands of Jael, tent spike through the head, not a great way to go. But as we get more of this praise report in Judges 5, 28 through 30, it tells us that Sisera's mom, who is back home wondering how her son Sisera is doing, um, she essentially says, man, I'm so worried about my son, but you know what? He's probably fine. The scripture literally says, as she's sort of going, I think he's okay, she says, He's probably, even now, at this very moment, ripping a necklace off of 
the neck of a dead Israelite woman, he's fine. He's probably even now finishing up raping all of the women of Israel and selling them into sex trafficking. Okay, JL, go ahead. Do what you got to do. You see the, the, the perversity and the wickedness that this man had carried out for the last 20 years over all of Israel. God brings justice to wickedness. Judges 5.31 says, all your enemies will perish, but those who love you will be like the sun. All your enemies will perish, but those who love you will be like the sun. God is our only hope. God is a God of justice, and rightfully so. And he is also a God of mercy, rightfully so. And he is our only hope. The gospel tells us that God has triumphed over evil through his son. And so when you face injustice in this life, rather than trying to carry out revenge yourself, trust that God is a God of justice. See that Jesus wins eternally and ultimately over sin, Satan, and death, an enemy that we could never conquer, but he himself can conquer. There is a day that is coming. Eternity is coming. And Jesus will return. He will return for a final judgment, just like our kids have returned for the final moments of worship. Let me tell you about Romans 3.23. The Bible says this in, in verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Verse 26, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, sin has already been judged on the cross. Jesus took all of God's wrath upon himself on the cross. So the invitation from the word of God is clear. Would you come to him in your sin and brokenness and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. As hard as I have tried to live the perfect life and do the right thing, I fail every single day. But you have offered me grace and salvation. Jesus took God's justice. Jesus took the spike to the head. Yet he had committed no sin. He took my sins, our sins upon himself. By faith, we can ask and receive salvation. And for most of us, that's the hardest part is, is admitting, owning the fact, I can't fix it myself. I can't save myself. I'm not good enough on my own. But there is one who has done for me what I could not and I would not do for myself. Jesus the risen Savior who conquered sin, Satan, and death, and now is alive and seated at the right hand of God the Father, and who will come back one day to take his family home to be with him for eternity. Call upon that Lord and that Savior even today. Let's take a moment now. Let's go to that good and loving Father, Savior, and Lord. Lord God, we thank you. We praise you. You are good. We're not 
Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your faithfulness. We thank you for this story and how it reminds us to, to use the gifts that you have given us, Lord, to be brave and to be faithful, to obey, to trust that you are in control and that you bring ultimate victory even when it seems like our situation in life is impossible. But Father, we fail at all those things all the time, and so we look all the more to your grace. Father, forgive us for we, where we have not trusted you even this week. Father, would you allow your people to continue to turn back to you in trust, Lord? Our hearts will tend to turn away, Lord, but would you draw us by your goodness and your grace back to your holy face? Father, I pray for those who are still trying to understand who you are, understand who Jesus is and what he's done and what relevance that might have to their lives. And Father, I pray that you would make those who do not know you, Lord, see clearly, open their eyes that they might see you. Open their ears that they might hear you, that they might see from your word the good news of the gospel of hope and life and salvation that begins now, the day of belief, and lasts for all eternity. Father, we look to you. We give you all praise. We give you all glory. You are good. You are sovereign alone. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.